My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand free speech through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or simply who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Um, why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about free speech? Hello, Dario. Free speech is one of those issues that um, is always mentioned as part of our proud Western heritage, right? Uh, whenever you ask what, what is good about the West, the first thing usually that's mentioned is democracy, and very quickly that is followed by words such as freedom of expression, um, freedom in general, those kinds of things. So it's one of those foundations of, if you like, the Western identity and also the, the Western bubble. Free speech in the 21st century has become increasingly complex and tense, the whole debate around it, because of our uh, changing views on identity, our changing views on who we are and who we want to be. And, and that has laid this time bomb, if you like, underneath Western society. And what are the facts? Freedom of speech is a principle that supports the freedom of an individual or a community to articulate their opinions and ideas without fear of retaliation, censorship or legal action. Terms like free speech, freedom of speech and freedom of expression are used interchangeably in political discourse. However, in a legal sense, the freedom of expression includes any activity of seeking, receiving and imparting information or ideas regardless of the medium used. Freedom of speech and expression may not be recognized as being absolute, and common limitations of boundaries to freedom of speech relate to slander, obscenity, pornography, incitement, fighting words, hate speech, classified information, copyright violation, trade secrets, food labeling, non-disclosure agreements, the right to privacy, dignity, the right to be forgotten, public security, and perjury. What is the bubble? So I think we can be transparent here um, that we are recording this not only because it's a very important topic, as you pointed out in the introduction, but also because a listener of ours, uh, Leon, sent us a video uh, from that was only up, uploaded a few days ago, uh, but it's from a press conference of Rowan Atkinson from a few years ago, uh, when it, there was a big discussion in the United Kingdom happening on reforming Section 5. Uh, and it basically was this campaign called free, Feel Free to Insult Me. Um, and uh, we will definitely link it in the post description below, but there was one statement in particular that really caught our attention is when Rowan Atkinson said that free speech is one of the most important things in life. And when we're talking about the Western bubble, I think this is a very good way to start it because for us, it might feel like free speech is one of the most important things in life, but that does not necessarily reflect reality. Yes, it's probably fair also to point out that the rest of the press conference um, was full of very good points about the, the problems that modern society faces when it comes to free speech and when it comes to the dangers to limiting free speech and all that. So it's, it's overall, the press conference contains many wise words, but he essentially started by saying... Free speech is the second most important thing to me in life after having food in my mouth um, and uh, before having a roof over my head. 
And that is such a middle-class Western kind of perspective. The idea that if you were to prioritize the things that are important to you in life, free speech is second, is complete nonsense, of course. It's, it's not even in the top 10. I mean, you've got a whole list of basic necessities before you can even start thinking about free speech. And that goes way about beyond food. It, 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 it's about physical security. It's, 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 it's about um, social stability. It's about education for your children. And, and at some point down the line, free speech becomes more and more important, of course. Uh, but, but that's exactly how the West confuses itself, right? The West seems to think that somehow their principles are um, foundational, uh, foundational human condition for everyone. And that democracy and freedom of expression are just as important as the air we breathe. Well, newsflash, they aren't. They're not as important as the air we breathe. And in some cases, they're not important at all. I remember having a lot of conversations like these, in especially the first few years of university, when I said that if you are hungry and your children are hungry, then free speech is one of the last things you care about. It's mostly the fact that you care about uh, food for your children. As you said, physical security, a uh, roof over your head. Uh, there's a long list of things. And I think that uh, outside the West, that this is a lot more prevalent than maybe within the West. It, it's exactly the same thing as with, with democracy, right? Uh, these Chinese farmers that have, have been lifted out of poverty into middle-class standards of living in China, ask them whether they'd rather be poor still living in, in complete economic and social deprivation on the countryside or whether they enjoy their current life they will always tell you, hey, please give me my current life. And I'm very happy with the authoritarian system that led me to uh, to this place. I mean, we've had a conversation like this before, but uh, in one or two generations, this might be very different within China. Is that then the, the children who grew up with that feeling of uh, wealth and very few insecurities otherwise, that they will feel very strongly about this. But, but that's, exactly, that's exactly the Western bubble, right? Because so many people in the West are living in middle-class standards of living or above. Uh, we have forgotten what basic necessities are, and now we have the luxury to have these conversations. And they're really important. I mean, I'm a major, major defender of freedom of speech. But the idea that I can talk about that without acknowledging that this comes from a place of luxury, from a place of privilege, is of course insanity. It only becomes relevant once you've fulfilled the other criteria. So let's use this luxury and let's have a discussion um, on free speech. And let's start with free speech as a concept because there it always gets conflated. You know, there's a lot of different terms flying around. I've read it out in the fact sheet. People also use uh, freedom of expression, uh, free speech, freedom of speech. So there's basically two different versions. Um, however, there's a lot of space in between as well. And when we talk about freedom of speech, we're generally talking about your legal right that the state and no one else can interfere with, with your freedom of expressing your own opinion. So that if I say, I think that Angela Merkel is stupid, that then there won't be the German police uh, coming and knocking on my door and taking me away because I said so. 
yeah, I will send you a strongly worded letter, but uh, you will be protected from any um, repercussions beyond that. Uh, essentially, that that core foundational freedom of speech is protection of the individual against the state, mostly. Um, of course, you you also need to be protected from other individuals, but that's where the state again comes in because the state has to protect you from violence. Um, I can't knock on your door and 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 hit you because you said something mean about Merkel. Uh, but most importantly, it is the idea that the state will not interfere with your rights to express yourself. And that, that, that is essentially the tension between the authorities and the individual. And of course, that's a hugely important aspect of what makes the West the West. That's, 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 that's a fundamental uh, condition for democracy. It is something that we hold very highly in the West, and rightfully so. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to to have that defense against the state and to be able to express yourself without oppression. And you already gave the other example um, for basically the other side of what free speech can be or is confused as. That would be sending me a strongly worded letter uh, calling, well, I mean, telling me that I'm wrong and maybe even going beyond. Uh, so that would basically be the other side. And if we take this to the extreme, it would be you going on Twitter and uh, telling everyone to send me mean messages or messages of, of disagreement um, because of my statement. Yes, and this is where the conflation often begins, where, where, where people conflate those two different things. If I aggressively go after your words without without obviously physical violence or anything but i i aggressively tell you dario you should not have said that you're wrong to say that how dare you say that then that is not me infringing upon your freedom of expression this is me criticizing your expression uh, to take it a step further if i say dario i will never want to do a podcast with you anymore i'm not taking away your right of free speech I'm just saying, I don't want to give you a platform. I don't want to share a platform with you to uh, for you to spout your nonsense. Uh, that is not the same as harming free speech. I am free to criticize you as much as I like. Um, and that is also part of free speech, right? And yet what we often see in today's discourse, certainly on social media, is that if I say about someone... Um, Oh, they should never have said that. That was a terrible thing to say. Then you straight away have a number of internet trolls who go, oh, you're against free speech then. No, I just think it was a terrible thing to say. They can say it, but it was terrible. So let's take this away from me uh, criticizing Angela Merkel um, and maybe two more prominent examples out there where you have speakers such as the likes of Jordan Peterson. I think we've mentioned him before and I think we have made it clear that we don't, we don't, count him for being someone very bright, um, someone who uses a lot of very complicated words to sound very smart, but not necessarily someone who makes very convincing points, at least not to me. Um, I mean, our listeners might disagree, but feel free to send us an email. Um, however, Jordan Peterson not being invited uh, to speak at universities is not going against free speech, and it happens all the time. Yes, now in itself, any university saying, we don't want Jordan Peterson to speak at our institution, is completely consistent still with free speech because they're not saying Jordan Peterson is not allowed to speak. They're just saying, we don't want to use our buildings for this. We are not a plan. Just like we don't want any, we don't want to give an hour time to a 10 year old boy uh, who wants to talk about his toy cars. 
you choose who you want to give a platform to in life. And in, as a university, you do that. As a company, you do that. As an individual podcaster, you do that. We are not obliged to invite Jordan Peterson onto our podcast. If we, if we do so, it's fine. If we don't do so, it's also absolutely fine. None of that is an infringement of free speech. None of that denies the importance of free speech because we're not denying Jordan Peterson to create his own podcast, to create his own university, to create his own platform in which he can speak. Of course he can do that, but we just don't want to help him in it. And that's where people really get very, very confused very quickly. So this is what we would call social or informal censorship. If we simply do not want to give him a platform and could go as far as saying, oh, there's, I'm, I'm watching a YouTube video of his. No, let me block him because I do not want to see any of the content again. Right. And th this is where it gets complicated because I, as an individual, can choose to block him. I can choose to um, not give him a platform if I have such a platform. But... Once it gets down the line of social censorship, you get into the idea of a whole group of people trying to um, basically block him from being able to express himself, right? So, and that's when it gets scary. So if you and I and others start organizing ourselves to make sure that Jordan Peterson can never, I don't know, tweet anymore without you know, Twitter crashing because of trolls or something like that. Um, us hacking into Twitter to make sure that Jordan Peterson cannot express himself. Or um, us trying to put pressure on YouTube to not um, publish videos from Jordan Peterson or something like that. Then we go down a very scary rabbit hole. And that's very different from me as an individual or as a university choosing not to give him a platform. Going after him beyond my own platform is probably where um, things get ugly. I think to stick with social media terms or with, with basically tech, uh, technological terms, um, if I personally decide to block him so I don't see him anymore, that's me simply not wanting him and that's not me limiting his free speech. But if I take it a step further and I report him for hate speech, for example, And let's say I organized this. So now there's 500 people who report him for hate speech. That's the moment and then where something at the YouTube headquarters makes click and, uh, and people have to look into it or might even take it down preemptively and then check it afterwards because there's some really strong rules or EU regulations, at least here in Europe in place. That then becomes difficult because you're organizing yourself to actually limiting someone's ability to speak, which would be the same as students organizing This disrupting protests at universities. So there's a difference between simply holding up a sign and saying, we disagree with you, and basically disturbing Jordan Peterson then in the act of speaking. So while he's trying to give his talk, that you scream over him and there's and make a lot of sound so that he doesn't get a chance to speak. That, that's exactly it. And when it comes to reporting, um, I, I never understand. We live in a world where people continu continuously seem to report others and, and, and continuously react angrily against what others say. To me, it seems pretty clear that the only time that I would report anyone is if I see that they actually break the law, um, as in the first type of free speech problem. Like uh, if I see a tweet in which people are planning to murder someone, I will report that to the police because they are actually about to... Um, to commit a serious criminal offense. 
Beyond that, why would I ever report someone for something broadly defined as hate speech? Or why would I ever, the, the moment I do that, the moment I go down, go down that route, basically I put myself into a moral, onto a moral pedestal and I say I am the arbitrator of who is right and who is wrong. Not the law, not the courts, not the police, not, and I am going to tell the world that my morality is better than that other person's morality. And that requires an insane amount of arrogance and, and, you know, overconfidence when it comes to one's own ability to assess these things. An example of this would be Charlie Hebdo. So Charlie Hebdo, I mean, is this a satire magazine um, and for the ones, for the listeners who don't know, in 2015, in January of 2015, uh, there was a violent extremist attack um, on the headquarters of Charlie Hebdo, where someone who uh, would be following radical extremist Islam uh, basically went into the headquarters with a gun and shot a bunch of the, the people working there in response to Charlie Hebdo publishing a cartoon of the Prophet Mohammed, which according to uh, Islam's customs, you're not allowed to do. Um, and here we then afterwards, we had, uh, you know, people changing their profile pictures on Facebook. I think that was one of the first times that this happened to Je suis Charlie um, and basically expressing sympathy with, uh, with the victims. Until this point, I think we are all here more or less, you know, in agreement. But then it, you know, things as always, you know, when as soon as you express sympathy and too many people get involved, that's the moment when it can get nasty. And I think something like this happened to you. Yeah, so I was lecturing um, on international relations, as I do at university. And this came up. Obviously, it was a big deal um, at the time. And I obviously, I'm sure that I condemned the violence um, as we should all always do. We should always condemn the violence and um, express sympathy for the victims of violence. But then after that, I said that I really do not understand what makes someone want to draw the Prophet Muhammad, knowing that it offends millions and millions of people. Now, I don't think that um, offending people is enough to punish them. You know, that's the whole point of free speech. We have a right to offend. But why would you knowingly go after hundreds of millions of people who feel somehow hurt or offended with a, a drawing like this. It's it just beyond my, my understanding to make some cheap political point. Um, and then people said, oh, how dare you? People became very angry, especially French students in my class became very aggressive against my words and said, well, Basically, now you're justifying the violence and you're limiting free speech and all that. No, I, I completely accept the right for that person to draw the Prophet Muhammad. But having the right to do something doesn't mean that you should do it. There's a difference between being allowed to do something and actually having a good reason to do it. And so people could not distinguish the difference between that, between me saying, it's horrifying that someone got or people got murdered because of this. It's horrifying that violence take, took place. At the same time, it is really, really annoying that people feel the need to draw the Prophet Muhammad, knowing that it hurts an entire religious group. There's absolutely no need to go down that route because we know that you're protected by free speech. And so a term that came up during that discussion and keeps on coming up is hate speech. 
um, that basically drawing this cartoon could be considered hate speech um, because, you know, you're... Uh, see, I'm struggling for words here because what is hate speech? You know, it's it's very difficult to define and is drawing a cartoon that insults hundreds of million people, well, hundreds of millions of people, um, is that hate speech? I'm not sure and I'm not sure, well, I'm also not a judge. I'm glad that the courts have to take care of that, but I don't think it's properly established within societies as well. No, and hate, hate speech is a very scary concept to me. Um, it, it's now been normalized in our society. It's something that certainly the young generation just takes for granted as a concept that somehow is applicable to reality. But hate speech is essentially le legislating what's going on in our head, right? So I say something, I do something, and now I'm going to be punished for my thoughts rather than actually for my actions, which is very scary to me. I should be... Um, free to have in my mind um, all kinds of ideas that aren't socially acceptable. And I, in most cases, I should be able to express those ideas unless they lead to a direct crime, to a criminal offense. You know, we go back to the hardcore meaning of free speech, the, the, the me being protected from being punished by the state. And hate speech tries to sort of create a gray area there. Hate speech says, well, if you're really misogynistic or if you're really racist or if you're really, I don't know, anti-Semitic, then we all of a sudden have a right to punish you for your thoughts and ideas. And that becomes very, very scary to me. Hate speech should not be a concept that we apply to the world around us. What we should apply is, um, are we actually breaking the law? If we break the law, then, um, uh, then there is a, a case for me to be put in front of a judge and put in front of court. If I'm not breaking the law, we should work very hard to allow me to have my own thoughts and to express my own thoughts publicly. See, this is so difficult uh, to talk and think about because I'm sure that any listener um, can name three examples immediately uh, that would convince me, oh, yes, you definitely shouldn't say this. Oh, maybe it should it should not be allowed to say this because it is so hurtful and because certain groups maybe have endured more than others. But that's that famous line, right? Because then at what point do you draw the line and say, oh, no, you can't say that. You can't say that because maybe these groups have not endured as much. So it's really this discussion about you have a line and as soon, like, you, it's very difficult to define. And in the gray areas like this of hate speech, it's very difficult to define because... So me basically uh, defaming, let's say, um, let's say French people, maybe in a German context where you know Germany has attacked France a few times, uh, maybe maybe that could be considered uh, as hate speech. But let's say uh, me saying something bad against Australians, there's no historical context with this. Australians are happy people, you know, they don't have to endure anything terrible, at least of my knowledge right now. So that's not really hate speech. I think that's a very difficult line to draw and something that we shouldn't attempt. And exactly when those words are spoken, it's a difficult line to be drawn. It is very hard to define. It's the moment that it doesn't, uh, it is no longer useful as a concept to our society. That doesn't mean that we can't have conversations about gray areas, but not as a mechanism to punish people for something. You cannot punish people if we cannot have clear lines. So, for example, um, in some countries, hate speech is now actually legislated in a way that if I kill someone, 
because of racist motives, I'm gonna get punished more than if I just kill someone because I was in a bad mood. Well, that is really, really scary. Because how do you define racist motives? How do you define uh, what's going on in my head? And how, in the end, the result is that someone got murdered. And I should be punished for taking the life of another human being. Not for the the thoughts that were going on in my mind before that, right? Um, at most, whether it was premeditated murder or not, whether I planned it or not, I could see that being an issue. But the idea that we can sort of create a vague sense of morality and then apply that vague sense of morality onto, onto what we're allowed to think and not to think, what we're allowed to say and not to say, that becomes very scary. So to go back to Charlie Hebdo, everyone is entitled, as free in France certainly, to draw a picture of the Prophet Muhammad. I will go after you with my strongly worded letters for doing so. I will criticize you for doing so. I will ask you what is wrong with you? Why do you want to um, make hundreds of millions of people feel very uncomfortable? But how do you think that that improves the world? But you are protected to do so. And even if you're an Islamophobe, even if you have some kind of horrible racist ideas about Arabs or whatever it is that you have, you have a freedom to draw that picture. But I won't go easy on you. I will go after you because I, I think that you um, should not go down that path. Exactly, going after them in strongly worded letters, and I think exactly which is which which is a better version of of going after them in, in a form of a tweet, because that's the moment when very quickly you know things can things can actually get out of hand. I mean, isn't there this difference between oh me typing at two hundred eighty characters and hitting send, and me having to handwrite? You know, my generation that's difficult. Then I need to Google how to properly format the letters so that it will actually get sent. I need to know where to buy stamps and all of that. It takes long more time for your hatred to go down. But this is a perfect example of where our world is going horribly wrong at the moment, right? Because that tweet is something very easy. It is very easy to put Je suis Charlie behind your Twitter account or to put Ukrainian flag behind your Twitter account or to put um, whatever else label you behind your Twitter account. Uh, that allows you to quickly virtue signal to quickly say to the world, I'm on the right side of morality without actually having to go through the effort of actually writing out a letter and thinking about your argumentation and analyzing the issue properly and, you know, using respectful words. It's much easier to just tweet out something and to feel morally outraged. And that very clearly typifies society in the 21st century, where it's all about that moral outrage and, and that inherent tribalism moving... Um, you know, the goalpost according to which tribe you belong to and then saying, hey, if you don't belong to my tribe, you're morally reprehensible and I'm going to send you some mean messages. But I'm not going to properly write a letter thinking about my position, thinking about your position and trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong. No, no, no. I'm just going to be very upset and very angry with you. <laughs> I mean, in general, I think we can conclude that the you know, the introduction of social media, the time of technology has led to a, also a further fragmentation of tribalism. Because before there were, you know, clearly established tribes. And now you have a lot of tribes. You have a lot of tribes and you have sub-tribes and sub-sub-tribes. And as you already mentioned, you know, you had a half-tribalism, my tribe versus the other tribe, wanting to discredit the other tribe, trying to feel also feeling threatened by the other tribe. You know, you have that further fragmentation, which I assume... I mean, this is just, this is without any scientific backing, but then leads to to more of that outrage and 
in the world that we currently live in where you have that environment of saying, oh, that's hate speech and you cannot say that and you shouldn't be allowed to say that and I'm going to make sure that you will never say that again. Yeah, so, so then basically free speech becomes a matter of you're free to say whatever you like as long as it falls within my moral code. And the moment you step out of my moral code, I label you racist or I label you sexist or I label you something else, Islamophobe or anti-Semitic or whatever it is. At that moment, your free speech ends because I no longer connect to your perspective on the world. And that, of course, is exactly the wrong way around. Free speech exists exactly to defend those who have different perspectives from you, to, to, uh, to defend those who go outside of the moral norms. Why? Because nobody has to be protected to say what everyone else agrees with. You know, I, if 99% if, if of society agrees with my words, then I don't need free speech protection because nobody is going to go after me. It is about protecting those who say something that we don't like, that we feel offended by, that we feel uncomfortable with, that we feel is outrageous, that we feel is unpleasant. Those words need to be protected. I don't need to be protected from saying, hey, it's, the, it's a nice day outside. Let's go. You know, I, I, I love 25 degrees. That is that doesn't require any free speech protection. Oh, well, maybe you're actually romanticizing global warming um so but i no, i mean now, now we've gotten a bit far away from from the original part of why free speech is so important uh, to the western bubble i mean why is it so important to protect these you know dissenting voices the ones that are maybe the one percent that are maybe the 20 percent of society why is it that the west believes that free speech is so important and i mean we believe that as well, just not within the top 10. Well, there, there are some practical reasons and some principled reasons, right? Um, a, a practical reason would be that um, by having the freedom to express yourself and not just express yourself uh, in speech, but also having thoughts and, and, and communicating these thoughts in many different ways that you have allows us to... Uh, move forward, allows us to develop ourselves, allows us to learn things about ourselves. Uh, you know, there are plenty of examples from the past. The, the usual cliche is Galileo Galilei, uh, where people said something that went against the standard norm of those days, but they contributed tremendously to our eventual social evolution. So having free speech allows us to um, develop society, cr be creative, be um, open-minded, even if it goes against our sensitivities or you know moral sensibilities, whatever. At the same time, um, the principle is, of course, that we as an individual human being should not judge the perspectives of another human being as long as those perspectives do not damage my um, physical integrity and, and my, my, my life in any significant way. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? So these foundations are incredibly important, you know, to Western society. Um, I mean, it's, I think there's a very easy argument to be made um, that it has tremendously contributed to the wealth um, that kind of that we are living in in the, in the past few hundred years. Um, 
And now we see that these foundations are being threatened by exactly what we discussed in the bubble. Um, and now that we are obviously in the in the category of the damage, I mean, so what are some of these what are some of these damages if free speech or the opposite of, of free speech, hate speech in that sense, is now used to limit free speech of others? What are the damages of that to exactly what we what we outlined is so hugely important to Western society? Well, it's, it means that we are crossing certain red lines um, with respect to, you know, the, the basic foundations of what every individual is entitled to in society and certainly in Western society, which means that uh, we are turning our society into sort of, I would almost say, a 16th century moral uh, consensus, right? We have one type of morality and... Uh, we want to push for that type of morality and anyone who falls outside of that type of morality is wrong and needs to be punished for that. And the moment we do that is the moment that we actually encourage the state to assume an awful lot of power. Remember what we said early on, free speech is my defense against the state, is my way of holding the state accountable. The moment that we ask from the state to become a beacon of morality and to impose our morality onto everyone else who disagrees with us, is the moment that we are creating an authoritarian, totalitarian system, and a very scary one at that, in which people are no longer able to criticize the state, in which people are no longer able to hold power to account, because very quickly you're going to be punished for saying the politically incorrect thing. So by creating this social narrative, this social discourse about um, soft free speech rights. So basically, hey, we will do everything we can to limit you from saying what you want to say. We open the door for the state, for authorities to come in and say, okay, no worries, well, we have this, we've got your back. And we will be this knight in shiny armor defending your morality against the bad guys. And that's the moment that the West loses its identity, that the West loses democracy, loses freedom and everything else. Because it ultimately leads to majority rule or tyranny. Is that I know fifty one percent of the country say that you oh you cannot insult French people, um, and then the forty nine percent of the country that I don't know maybe have some valid criticism of the French for some reason um, that they are no longer no longer about to speak about this and are no longer able to you know voice these maybe very valid concerns that would who knows maybe drive society forward by improving something of the French system. Of course, and the, and, and the next step is that I'm no longer allowed to criticize the state. I'm no longer allowed to insult the state because the state is now this beacon of morality. And by criticizing the state, I go against that. So all of a sudden, there's going to be mechanisms in place to make sure that I keep quiet. And the moment I can no longer criticize my government or my state is the moment that we have lost the very foundation of what is Western free democracy and all that. I think a very good example of this is the current discussion culture within Western countries on almost everything. Is that it is no longer about what you say, but how you say it. Uh, did you use the correct language on certain terms? Oh, no, you used a word that, according to maybe my definition, you can't say because that's hate speech. And therefore, I will discredit your entire idea, um, which is a very lazy... I mean, for me, it's just a lazy way of, of arguing, but it is also a very dangerous outcome and limiting 
I mean, from, from my perspective, what has made the West so strong is allowing these different perspectives and therefore advancing by simply having a good discourse. If you no longer have a discourse on ideas, but a discourse on what can be said and not, then I think you might be losing the big picture. The very aggression in, this kind, in these kinds of conversations that you mentioned is something that is detrimental to our society um, in so many ways because it doesn't allow us to connect with the other person's perspective anymore. It doesn't allow us to actually say, look, I don't understand where you're coming from. To me, it feels kind of intuitively really wrong and horrible what you're saying, but let's see what kind of dialogue we can create. And maybe I will understand your perspective a little bit more uh, why you vote for Donald Trump. And maybe you can understand my perspective a little bit more and we can see if somehow we find somewhere some common ground, right? And if we don't find common ground, that's also okay. As long as we both stick with to the law and we behave as decent citizens within our society, it's okay. I don't have to agree with you and you don't have to agree with me. And what now? So when we're talking about the future, um, one of the ideas we had for, for this segment now is a discussion we had before recording this episode. Um, because when it comes to free speech, I think it's always the United States that's mentioned as the country where you have the most amount of free speech. And then I always say that, well, in my country, we don't have a lot of free speech because, for example, here it is not legal to deny the Holocaust. And that's something that I think is is on that in that gray area and in that discussion where I personally, as German citizen, I feel very strongly about that. I am very much agree that you should not be allowed to deny the Holocaust in this country, given its history, given its past, given how we learn to deal with this. Um, however, I know that there's other voices out there that say, oh, that's, I mean, again, where do we draw the line? Like, okay, you're not allowed to deny the Holocaust, but does that also apply to the uh, Turkish genocide in Armenia? So I'm agnostic on the German case and also, I guess, on Israel, for example, because, of course, Germany and Israel are very specific when it comes to the Holocaust for, for good reasons. And I just don't have a good analysis on that. But as a general rule, let's say um, Spanish society or U.S. society or Dutch society, uh, the moment it is vague and it's not easy to define why the Holocaust, no, but the Armenian genocide, yes, or the other way around, that's the moment that you know that you're in trouble and you should not legislate against that, right? So if someone were to deny the Holocaust, I would once again send my strongly worded letter <laughs> and I would try to give them you know, as many facts as possible to tell them that they're idiots for denying the Holocaust and that the Holocaust was real and that the numbers are real. You can argue about a few thousand here and there, which says a lot about the insane amounts of numbers uh, that the Holocaust has, um, you know, victimized. But overall, the someone denying the Holocaust is just denying reality. But they have a right to deny reality. And if we don't give him the chance to deny reality, the practical consequences are also much worse because that leads to them feeling somehow that there's some kind of conspiracy. Why am I not allowed to say this? Why am I not allowed to think this? And you get this anti-reaction. You create this idea that they're being oppressed by the man, by the system, somehow by the elites, by the Illuminati, whoever. And... You want to avoid that kind of dynamic. So, beyond Germany and Israel, where, like I said, I have no perspective, Holocaust denial should be allowed and should then be vigorously um, 
be explained why denial is wrong, why it is just not in line with reality, why the Holocaust did exist, how we know that, and what the consequences are, rather than just saying, no, no, we don't talk about it because obviously it's true, because then it becomes a dogma, and once something becomes a dogma, um, you're kind of on the wrong side of history. See, for me personally, coming from my tribe, it's, I mean, I, I understand all these arguments, they make a lot of sense to me. Um, but coming from my tribe, it's difficult to comprehend or to accept, thinking that it should be, it should make sense to everyone out there that denying the Holocaust is is a terrible thing to do and you cannot do it because for exactly the reasons that I was taught all my life. Um, so for me personally, it's difficult to kind of accept that. But at the same time, I mean, this is, this is, I think, the exercise that we all have to do with our own tribes. You do have to then, I mean, here I'm, I have a lot of help from the Westphalian system saying that, no, within your society, you can regulate it this way if you have, you know, the maybe the context and the agreement on that. But that overall, it becomes very difficult um, as soon as you have to, again, ask yourself the question, oh, then why not this? And I think that this is a good exercise overall is asking yourself and your tribe, why are you so angry about this? And why do you think that this should be, should not be covered by uh, free speech? And then kind of making that transfer to, oh, then why not that? But, but that's exactly the process. So when then when you ask yourself, why are you so angry about someone denying the Holocaust? The answer is clear because I would say 99 out of 100 people denying the Holocaust do so willfully, knowing that they're lying about it, but they try to push a narrative. There are very few people, I think, that seriously inside of their mind believe that the Holocaust isn't real. And so people have an agenda when they deny the Holocaust, an anti-Semitic agenda, or some kind of extreme right-wing agenda in general, or whatever. And that makes us upset, because we feel deeply, deeply uncomfortable with that. It goes against our moral fabric. It goes against what our parents told us is right and proper about the world. And therefore, we have this emotional reaction against someone denying the Holocaust. We feel insulted by it. We feel offended by it. And that's exactly the moment that we need to protect the freedom for those people to actually say what they say and then critically assess that and criticize them or ignore them if we feel that they're just not worth our time. Um, It is exactly those moments that we get upset and outraged that we should stand on the barricades and defend the ability for people to say what they are saying. And we should just stop being so angry. Stop being so angry. That is the uh, solution. Yeah, try to have a reasonable conversation. Um, stop being so angry. And with this, I think I think that's a good moment and a great moment to end today's conversation on free speech. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. Also feel free to send us your strongly worded letters in case you disagree. We welcome them. Um, and we will try to incorporate that f- any type of feedback into our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? This is a quote from Peter Hitchens, which I essentially already paraphrased earlier on in this episode. Freedom of speech is freedom above all for those whose views you dislike most. Mm -hmm.